You are listening to the Coming Up for Air podcast hosted by Air Moms Lori McDougall and Annie Highwater. This podcast is sponsored by alliesinrecovery.net. Coming Up for Air brings together two wonderful people, both of whose adult sons are in recovery from opiate addiction. Annie Highwater and Lori McDougall have been through years of their loved one's active addiction. They have come to understand the direct link between taking care of yourself and being able to help your loved one. During these conversations, Lori and Annie address the questions and concerns brought up by Allies and Recovery members. And now, coming up for air with Lori McDougall and Annie Highwater. So we're back at Coming Up for Air this week. Hi, Annie. How are you doing? Hi, I'm good. How are you? Good. And today's um, topic that we decided to discuss is conflict and family dynamics or family dysfunction. Um, I believe family patterns because, and I think that family patterns have a lot to do with conflict. I think you can recognize patterns when conflict arises. It tends to be the same three or four arguments. I totally agree. That That's what I see. That's what I see in my family, like my extended family. When I was growing up, we all argued about the same stuff over and over and over again. And I also see it in my family now. You know, yeah. my, my husband, my children, we all tend to argue about the same stuff. We get, we get stuck. We get you stuck do. in those patterns and that's what makes us dysfunctional. Right. That's why I think conflict and patterns or in some cases pathology, things are pathological, have a lot to do with each other. They're not two separate subjects. They tend to be patterns of conflict and dysfunction. Right. Right. They're, they're honestly, connected. dysfunction is conflict. I think, you know, I heard somebody say once she defines insanity by anything that isn't peace. When there's a lot of chaos and conflict, that is where dysfunction lives. Right. Totally agree. <laughs> yeah. So some of my questions were because I tend to, st- I've studied conflict for a couple of decades. Actually, my father taught me the psychology behind boxing and he related that to emotional issues, mental strength, things like that. So I was taught boxing styles basically. And he would direct me to look at how people argued and conducted themselves in conflict, similar to how boxers do. And that really was interesting to me because I've always been able to, um, sometimes when you're in an argument with somebody and it gets heated, I tend to listen for their different tactics of conflict more than I'm listening to what they're saying because I have been so trained to recognize styles of conflict. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I, and I went and looked it up and I came across this one particular article by a Stephen Cartman and it was, it's called uh, the drama triangle and <gasps> victim consciousness. Yes. Have you read this? Do you know? I have, yes. I just listened to a podcast a couple of weeks ago and we all do it. It's the codependent triangle, the, the drama triangle of hero, adversary, victim. Right. And that's, uh, that's basically, I mean, different labels, but right. the same thing. He, he talked about the persecutor, yes. the rescuer and the victim. And we play all three roles. Right. And he, he called them like rotating roles. Yeah. And there, how many times have you been in a conflict with somebody? And I've done it myself where I'm the hero and the victim. I'm in the right and I'm persecuted, but then I'm antagonizing them. I mean, it's just a cycle. You go round and round and round. It's interesting. So if anybody's listening, research this. There's podcasts, there's YouTube videos. It is a fascinating concept. And once you know it, you can't unknow it. 
you no longer are a victim. You are a participant. Well, and you probably will sit in an argument then or anytime you're in the middle of conflict and start to try and identify, well, who's the persecutor? Yeah. Who's, who's doing the rescuing? Who's playing the part of the victim? But it was, it was interesting to me reading this article because it talked about this thing called, he called it a need or an obligate system, meaning that someone, you'll do something for someone. And, and my perception of what he was talking about is being the rescuer, mm -hmm. where you'll do something for someone and there's an unspoken expectation that the person you're doing it for will then do something in return. The problem with it is, is it isn't verbalized that you expect something in return. It's not agreed upon. It's not agreed <laughs> upon. And in fact, the other participants probably have no idea that that expectation is there. So when you, when they don't live up to the expectation that they are going to, you know, or they don't do what you thought they were going to do, you then become the victim. Mm -hmm. and, and resentful. And resentful. And you start harboring these, these, and you become the victim and you become the persecutor because you then you start accusing the other person of, well, you're not doing this or you're, so you end up with this, these rotating roles. Right. And it also, you can become really self-righteous in that. Like, I'm doing stuff for you. I'm the hero here. You know, you're right. lesser than me because I'm always having to do something for you. I'm, it, I, it's never appreciated. It's never reciprocated. Right. Yep. It is a nasty, nasty cycle. And many of us, all of us have been in it or repeated it at some time. Unless right. you were raised and trained in an institution setting with therapists, you do not know that you fall prey to this because it is just human nature to be one or the other and sometimes all three. Right, right. Because you have, you, you, we interact with one another and you feel like you have to play a particular role or you, you, right, you see an injustice. Oh, I have to write that injustice. That's not fair, right? Or maybe something is done to you. Hey, that's not fair for you to do that to me. You, does that make sense? Like, okay, so it does. The victim, and yeah. Is, and the pattern of that, you know, I, I watch a lot of like Ayanna Van Zandt. She she interrupts family patterns. She will go on the scene yep. and kind of stir things up, and she'll speak the truth. And then this person gets mad, and this person will say, "I've never seen them act like this." Or someone gets riled up, and she's okay with it because she's interrupting pattern. And she right. talks about how we repeat those patterns over and over. And I can say for a fact, I have repeated the exact same dynamics from when I was four years old until I was decades older. Every, over and over and over, I would repeat the same dynamics where I would walk into a situation, there would already be dysfunction, conflict in place. I would sense something was wrong. I would believe I was the fixer or I was at fault and to blame. I was the villain and hated. So I had to overcompensate and make everybody comfortable or make everyone like me, not because I wanted to be like, liked, or likable, I did it because I was trying to make peace and fix problems. And I did it over and I did it in work settings, church settings, sports settings, in family settings, in relationships. Over and over, I was fighting this group dynamic because I was born into a sick setting and I thought I caused it. I thought that, I, that my birth and me showing up created every problem in the room. So therefore, I was at fault. So therefore, I had to fix it. And that plagued the rest of my life until I became aware of it because we repeat those patterns, which puts me back in that triangle. I was the victim and I was the cause. I was the persecutor and I was the hero because I was going to fix it. And when you are running that race, you are insane. Right. You are insane. It's right. insane. 
It right, is madness. Yeah. It's misery. It's depression. It's discouragement. And, it's everything sick. And the reason why we continue to do it over and over again is because we, we don't change anything. And it's we normal. We think it's normal. Roles. Right. We just, we just play those roles. I, I don't think we're, we're aware of it. I don't think we think about it, right? I know I don't. I don't sit there and go, oh, I'm going to play the victim right now. No. We're, we're definitely not aware of those roles. But I think once you do become aware of those roles, that's when you can make a difference. Yeah. Right? And I, I, did, uh, I did a little bit more research as well. And I found that there were three characteristics that were particular to family conflict. Uh, and it made sense to me. The first one was intensity, that the intensity of family conflict can be really at a high level, which makes total sense, right? Because the re- your relationship within the family, those are the people that you're closest with, both physically and yeah. mentally, right? That's who we depend on. We depend on our parents, or we depend on our brothers or our sisters. Our most emotionally tense moments get spent with them. Yeah. Right? So does that make sense? It does, yep. The second one was the complexity that family conflict can be extremely complex. Again, makes makes sense. And they talked about this characteristic as it's so complex that there's even like these baffling is how they turned it baffling characteristics. And what they meant by this was like relationships, like um, battered wives, you know, people Mm -hmm. always ask the question, why does a battered wife stay with a husband that's beating her? Right. Or, or, and I've seen this, I've actually had a friend, I had a friend who was a victim of incest by her father and people asked all the time why she still had interaction and relationships with her father. She would still go visit him on the holidays. She would bring her kids. And I understand, at least I think I understand a little bit of it now that she had this intense relationship that there were dual feelings going on in that relationship. So she had positive interaction with her father, right? She had times when things were good and she loved him and she's supposed to love him because he's her father. But then she had this awful uh, interaction with him as well. And so there's this dual baffling thing going on, right? Where, why does she, can, why does she maintain this relationship? Well, it's because she's got both of those things going on. And it's very conflicting. You know, it's very hard to then say, I'm going to tear away from this person. It is. And, you know, a lot of things go on in the midst of that, that this person is told this is normal. This is right. This is your fault. Don't tell anybody. Everything inside you that is screaming instinctively is invalidated. And invalidation is so powerful. It's like the Stockholm syndrome. When you tell somebody something is true that they know isn't, you wear them down and it's, you know, the gaslighting and all of those things there, they start to think they're crazy and they're at fault. All of these things are in play when a relationship is that sick and off the rails. Right. You can't understand how baffling it is unless you've been through it or you've been trained in it. An outsider view can't possibly understand the working in the mind of somebody that's gone through that. Right. To also contribute to complexity is the fact that these people are your relatives for the rest of your life. Right. They're there. They're in your life for the rest of your life. 
That's right. right. It, and it does, they don't even have to be there physically. They can just be there mentally. They have an impact on you. Before we go on, I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge our sponsor, Allies in Recovery. Since 2002, Allies has been helping families like yours and like mine cope with the substance use of a loved one. Join Allies in Recovery today and you'll have access to a wealth of information, strategies, and community to help you navigate the minefield of addiction. That's alliesinrecovery.net. Now back to the show. Then the third characteristic was the duration of the conflict, right? And the long-term effects of the dysfunctional uh, conflict patterns, right? So, so break that down in layman terms because so I am a in layman. Other words, so in other words, what, what my take on it was, was you have these, you have these con conflicting interactions. Okay, here's a perfect example. This is what I, this is my take on it. I had my daughter first, my oldest daughter. And when she was first born, up until she was two years old, a little bit older, uh, she was my only child. And she had my attention 24-7. I was a stay-home mom. I took care of her 24-7. We, we were never separated. I never went away on a vacation or, you know, it was just me and my oldest daughter together 24 hours a day. Then I got pregnant with my son. And after my son was born, he took, first off, he was a difficult baby. He cried a lot. And he took a lot of my attention away from her. And I look back on it now, and I can remember her doing little things that I think were examples of the feelings that were rising, this feeling of conflict. Like, I'm supposed to love this baby, but boy, oh boy, has he disrupted my life, right? right. He took my mother away from me. My mother's cranky all the time now. Uh, she carries him and she won't carry me, right? You know, so I just, him being born disrupted her life in a way that it drummed up all these feelings. And I think, I believe, I, and I have said this to my husband a million times, but I believe that those feelings still get drummed up in her when she's in the presence of her brother under certain circumstances. And I don't think she realizes where those feelings are coming from because she forgot. She didn't, she doesn't really think about the time her brother was born, right? But yet those feelings are still there. And so the duration of that conflict is still a part of her being, and it's still impacting her relationship with her brother. Yeah, I was going to say I had written down, and we carry the rhythms of our early family patterns throughout life. Right. We carry that same rhythm throughout life. I had, interestingly enough, had somebody ask me what was going on and it's interesting if you think about your kids or if you think about yourself, if you're lucky enough to know the story, what was going on at the time of your pregnancy and birth? So a lot of those things are patterns that kind of recreate themselves throughout your life. It's a kind of a ripple rhythm effect. I don't know what was going on in your life when your mom was pregnant and in your delivery, but I was the youngest of six kids. My mom in her eighth month of pregnancy, their home burned down. 
So she took five kids, moved in with her parents who were not favorable toward my father. Her brother was a college student at the time who was experimenting with music and drugs in the 60s scene, and it was madness. And she comes eight months pregnant, trauma, a home burned down, into this home, has this baby, brings this baby home into this mess. Then they're trying, you know, all this conflict and chaos. Then they're trying to get out and get into a new house. So they took the first thing that they could, and it was urgent, urgent change, urgent crisis, upheaval. And that pattern repeated itself the rest of my life until I realized it. Those, those early patterns, what you, what's going on when you are born, the family dynamics, the setting, and that changes over time in different situations. But those patterns and the rhythm of them are internal. You marinate in those. You repeat right. those the rest of your life. Right. Right. You bring those feelings. You bring the, yeah, it becomes a part of you. It does. And, you know, you and I discussed something last time I talked to you, and I know I have a lot of parents tell me about this, whether they have somebody in addiction or not. And I don't know if it's just an issue with a son or an issue with someone this age, but I have a pattern with my son that is when he's facing something difficult or has a problem or a need, he puts it on me. He throws it at me. So it doesn't matter what I'm doing. I'm always caught off guard because he comes at me with it. And he even knows how it triggers me because immediately as a mom, your instinct is to triage the crisis. And how can I help? What can I do? What is he going to do? You know, your mind is starting to problem solve for them. But you know, some problems they've got to work through on their own, whether a minor or not. But once they're not a minor, they absolutely need to work these problems out on their own. You know, his latest issue was car problem. And he came at me with this urgency. And this, this is what's going to happen if this problem doesn't work out. So I start racing with him, you know, and he knows it. So he said, I'm just telling you this so I can get it out. I'm not telling you to solve the problem, which I'm sure he would have allowed me to. But I know a lot of people go through this with their kids. I have a friend who her son will text her. And I would, I don't know how anybody would handle it. I mean, it's frustrating for me to hear about it. Her son will text her a hundred times if she's not agreeing to bring him food after work. Like a hundred times. Firing machine gun text to her at work or texting her that, you know, he doesn't have enough money for what he wants to buy. That's not addiction related, but that's a pattern that I think our kids develop and we get into with them, whether we handle it right or not. And I was like, I was telling you, my, I will surge with it and it triggers me every time to hit the ceiling, whether I handle it right or not. It's always going to, at first, I'm not going to become immune to not feeling that first sensation of panic. What am I going to do? Wait, what are you going to do? Right. Right. Exactly. Backing off. Right. But this is, I think, um, after everything I read, talking about changing it, how can you change this conflict and this dysfunction and these patterns that are going on? I think that's, you, you kind of hit the nail on the head with saying, well, you identified that this is your trigger. This is a couple of notes that I wrote down when I, when I read the article, and they talked about how you can't be the victim and you can't be the rescuer. So once you identify the fact that, oh my gosh, I am the victim, right? You have to find some way to be, I'm not going to be the victim anymore. Or just kind of like what you said, you're the rescuer. Mm -hmm. You've identified, oh my God, I'm rescuing him. I got triggered. You've identified the trigger. Every time he's, he does this, I flip out, right? I get, mm-hmm. a, I get a funny knot feeling in my stomach, which we, yes, you and I talked about and I do the same thing. But then mm-hmm. stepping back, taking deep breaths, stepping back and go, oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. And, and I think you can even test the waters a little bit and you can ask questions of, well, 
this is something I think you can handle on your own. I don't think you need me for this, right? Right. And I would say he's he's even so aware of of how of the effect it has because of years prior when it was all out of whack and uh, dysfunctional. And he will even preface it by saying, I'm not telling you this so that you'll solve it or panic or tell me what I'm doing right or wrong. I'm telling you this because I got to get it out. So, you know, maybe I'm not the right person to tell it to. I don't know because it doesn't ever not trigger me. And I would love to come to a place where it where I am so whole and well that I don't have that racy spirit with it. Well, but I have, at least I know not to run with it and not to right. go into wrong decisions and behavior, but it's probably always going to take my heart rate to level 10 just for a moment. Right. And, and it's interesting because this, this article went on to, it, it talked about all of what we're talking about right now. It said, recognize your triggers. It did say refuse to rescue. Mm-hmm. I don't have a problem and, and refusing rescue. Right. And I don't, I don't think it means, I don't think they mean say to them, I refuse to rescue you. I right. think they mean in your head, in your mind, you say, I refuse, <laughs> I refuse to rescue. They do recommend re, uh, reflection techniques, which are, we've talked about these, where you repeat back to them. Oh, okay. So, so you're so saying. You're struggling, right. Oh, so mm-hmm. you're struggling with your car, that kind of thing where you're just reflecting back and then maybe saying something to the effect of, well, what do you want from me? And it was interesting because they said, if you ask this question, what do you want from me? Just that one question alone really takes the oomph out of the passion in, in the trigger. So, because why, why does it do that? Well, it makes the other person stop. They have to stop and they have to think, <laughs> what do I want from you? And they have to identify. Right. They have to yeah. identify and they have to really, they themselves have to reflect and they have to say, oh, well, oh, no, I don't want you to fix this for me. I'm just kind of, I'm just kind of telling you about it because I'm upset or, you know, or that kind of thing. Right. I thought, one, these are all things that we can get on allies in recovery. And right. These are all things that Dominique, Dr. Dominique has put on on the different modules on allies and recovery about how to identify your own triggers, how to kind of delay giving a response, how to use reflection techniques and talking back, right? How to, how to stop and pause and just listen. And I, and I went back to allies and recovery because I don't think I do this nearly enough where I go back and I actually rewatch modules that I've already watched. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, wait a minute, which module was it? And I found it, found it right away. Module number seven, how do I care for myself? And there's all a whole bunch of activities in there that can help you do that. It can help you to identify your triggers, right? What, what, Mm -hmm. how do I respond back to this? And what are the different things that, that put me into chaos? How do I do this reflective listening? How do I uh, force myself to stop? How do I how do I talk to the other person? I think that's like module four or module five is is actually all about listening, right? And how to talk, how to respond back, right? And this is for if you want peace, because some people honestly live for conflict, so they're yeah. ready to get gunning. And you know, there's been times where, you know, I'm ready. I wake up with my fist balled up, ready to fight. 
just yeah. based on what I've come from and what I'm going through. But if you truly want to pursue wellness and peace and wholeness and serenity and sanity, take a couple moments that might seem boring at first. Pull away from the day. It doesn't even have to be in the moment that the urgency happens. Pull away. Take a few minutes to adjust your behavior and techniques. And that's, you know, I always say it's like turning a ship around that's been going the wrong way for a long time. It doesn't happen overnight. It happens gradually. Life starts to get better. And that's really, I think, what we all want for life to get better. While I'm thinking about it, let's thank Allies in Recovery for sponsoring Coming Up for Air. Members who join Allies in Recovery can communicate directly with us. When you join, you can ask us questions we'll address on our podcasts. You can also request topics you would like us to cover. Join today at alliesinrecovery.net. Now back to the show. Another thing, another thing um, that I don't think we talk about nearly enough, and I don't just mean me and you, I mean in general, and I think people are really starting to talk about it more and more. One thing that I got from all of the articles that I read was it's actually really a key piece was to heal your trauma. Yeah. Right? And we have trauma... from what I got in this article, I think back to when my son was born and my daughter was struggling with him now being a part of the family. That was actually some kind of trauma that an early uh, childhood trauma that she experienced and it never got addressed. Yeah. Right? And I don't think it was a big trauma. You know, I don't think it was, well, although I don't know. I mean, because it did affect you her. Can't, right. You can't right? say. I mean, it, Everyone's you know, it different, right? But treat treat the trauma treat the trauma i like that yeah and, and that's absolutely tend to it you know and i was just telling we were talking earlier how i don't understand why mental and emotional health is not taught in school where it's needed there you know in some of those early years when physical health and sexual health and all of those things are taught but emotional and mental tending to the emotional and mental condition of our lives is the core of everything it's the core of everything it's how we go off the rails or not how we cope or not how we are floored by things become reactive choose difficult relationships get into addiction you know it's not always just a physical thing mental and emotional health is at the foundation of everything Right. So tending to the trauma is absolutely right. And I think dialectical behavior therapy, it's not very long. There's workbooks you can get. You can call therapists that specialize. It is really helpful because it's, it's focuses on managing distress relationships. Those moments where we go from zero to 60 with somebody or without based on a memory or something new. And it really teaches you how to manage yourself and be mindful and soothe yourself back down. We need to tend to our traumas or otherwise we'll go a whole decade acting out of them, not even realizing. It right. and everyone else pays for our poison spirit, right? There are uh, trauma specialists out there specifically right. for trauma. They say that you really need to handle it delicately and carefully, right? So, I, I would absolutely personally, I would go see a trauma specialist for any trauma that I've experienced, and maybe I will. Yeah, go for it. You know, one of the things when you're acting out of behavior from the past, I don't know if you've ever heard the term shadow beliefs. And it's when a situation rises up in your subconscious, but it appears in your life over and over. If you repeat the same patterns over and over in friendships or relationships, and the same thing keeps coming back into your face, you're standing over a shadow. And it could be that you think you're so worthless 
you choose abusive friends or you, you get bullied by in relationships. You choose someone that's not faithful and trustworthy. Whatever the case is, when the same situation repeats chronically and comes right. back into your face, those are shadow beliefs. And that comes from a lot of trauma too. And right. that can be worked out through therapy. Right. You don't have to repeat the same patterns that make you miserable, but you get out of one and go into another. Or you think you're going for the opposite situation and it ends up being the exact same pain over again. Those right. are shadow beliefs. Right. Those are patterns that repeat. And I think trauma can lead to that. I definitely do. I de you get stuck. Yeah, you do. Yeah. And pertaining to conflict, you know, one of the things I want to say is everybody has conflict. You have arguments with a sister or a best friend or a son or whatever the case may be. You know, I have witnessed recently just in the peripheral, a, a couple of friends whose friendship went south and one of them immediately became enemy acting. It's like all, you spend all these years in friendship and confiding and meeting for coffee and sharing stories of, you know, kids and exercise and everything that you go through life together. And then you, you have a dispute and one immediately takes it to enemy level, blocks you on social media, posts things that are passive aggressive at you, sides with people that you don't really like or get along with because they're wanting to intentionally hurt you. And I've had somebody pour a situation like this out to me recently. And I've experienced that in my own life. I think that when it comes to conflict, you know, not everybody's going to play fight fair or have ground rules. Mm -hmm. But I personally, you know, I think that if we kind of have certain things in place for how we handle it, you know what I mean? Like you can, you can come out of it a little less scathed, you know, like I have a couple of bottom line rules and I think that you would agree. Um, one of them is that not to receive vitriol and not to speak in vitriol, if you know what that is. That's the mm -hmm. hateful criticism. Um, leave room for amends when you're in conflict. Mm -hmm. I don't think a dispute has to lead to being adversaries forever. I mean, certainly there's situations where somebody has done something so nefarious to you, you maybe can't heal the relationship, but that's not always the case. A dispute, I don't think, has to escalate to the point of fractured forever. And even if it does, I think you can still be careful to not cross certain lines in yeah. order to, someday you might have to see this person again. Someday you might want to restore it. The further you go into nastiness, the harder it is to face them again or to make amends. I, I, I just think if you calm yourself down in the yeah. midst of conflict and think, you know what, I can take this shot right here. I could take this shot and I could send it right into an artery and level you, but I'm not going to, cause I'm going to, I'm going to see around corners and I'm going to think maybe it's going to, maybe I'm going to have to answer for this someday. And maybe I really, you're at a disadvantage and I could take this shot, but I'm not going for it. I, I agree with you on that. And I also think that, I think that usually when that, when something like that happens to me, at first I might get hurt, right? I might feel a lot of pain or whatever, but I usually come around to the idea that that other person's probably hurting a lot worse than I am for them to be doing that. If that, if that right. makes sense, that kind of behavior. There's a bigger picture going on. Yeah. Yeah. Usually indicates that there's something more going on and it probably doesn't have anything to do with me. And that kind of helps me to deal with it a little bit, mm -hmm. you know, not always, but definitely helps me to deal with it. And then if I do, I have to tell you, I am not one. I will apologize. If I do something, mm -hmm. 
and it sits on my mind for a while and I get mad at myself for having said or done something, I, I will try and make amends. I will try and go. And even if, even if it isn't, even if it is the end of a friendship, at least I don't want that person to hurt because of something I did or something I said, and right. I will try and make amends. And I think, I think making amends kind of humbles you. I think it does. And I think there are some extreme cases. I mean, I know I told you about one in my own life where a pattern repeated and I couldn't be the one to rush and make a, make amends and apologize for the sake of peace because I had to hold this person's feet to the fire or they're always going to treat me disrespectfully. I'm always going to be taken advantage of and kind of bullied. And those things are never going to stop because there's no respect there. And I don't think that's always the case, but sometimes I think there's got to be a more peaceful way to say, my hands are off. I'm just yeah. walking away. And the other thing, the other thing about that is, I don't think you should make amends for just for for peace. I I don't think you should. I think that, um, at least for me, I don't. I make amends when I do something that I shouldn't have done. That I that I. And you know that you know the difference because you go to bed feeling gross, and your conscience is bothering you. And even you know you might feel justified and angry at at doing something wrong, but eventually that's gonna you're gonna calm down. And when you get into a moment of peace, it's gonna gnaw at you because that's what it does to the human spirit. You know when you need to make amends. Right, but right, exactly, but not not to just make peace because I actually think doing that. can, can backfire on you, right? Because then they think, then the other person always thinks that, well, they, you almost end up taking the blame for everything. Does you that do. make sense? It's you like, do, and nothing improves. Right, and I can't always be wrong. I no, and always, you know, right? eventually that becomes a, an abusive relationship. Right. You right. know, I remember attending a class once, and one of my friends was a therapist, and she's a teacher, and she asked, what are your definitions of abuse? And everyone had different ones. And one girl had said, if he breaks my legs. Another one had said, if my best friend gets mad at me and punches me in the face. I mean, they were just all over the charts. And I remember she said, it can't be a really nasty look. It can't be a tone of voice. You know, it can't be ridiculing you. You know, it's, it's different degrees. It doesn't have to be so extreme to know you're being mistreated. Sometimes you just know. You know, and right. you can't rush in and make peace and make amends when you know you're being mistreated. You're not necessarily wanting to be the victim in that triangle, but there are times that people take advantage and mistreat us and they are wrong. And right. like you said, I can't always be the one in the wrong. Sometimes you choose a pattern where you repeat situations and put yourself with people that can't hear that they're wrong. They can't hear the truth about themselves. So you're always kind of, I don't know if you've ever right. experienced that. You're always apologizing. You're always making up for things. You're always making sure you're always the one doing maintenance on the relationship right. or the friendship. And that person doesn't. And then when you address it, they explode on you. So you just keep doing it. And right. at some point that's toxic. Yeah. It, it's too much. It's, it's too much work on your part. Right. So that's a part of, that's a conflict pattern. And I think I've probably been on both sides of it. Yep. You know, too. I, I, I wanted to tell you just something interesting. These are really quick. I had studied boxing styles, and I think there's five of them, and they really are the same way that people will handle conflict if you look at them. There's okay. d- people just have a, a different t- ways of approaching it. One of The first one is called a swarmer, and that is the type of fighter who will overwhelm you with constant pressure. They close in on an opponent with intensity. They kind of do the ambush thing. Have you, have you ever had somebody ambush you and you're so caught off guard that you don't even know how to defend yourself or respond? Mm-hmm. That's yep. called a swarmer. And then there is the outboxer. They're the opposite of a swarmer. An outboxer, they seek to kind of maintain a gap and some distance. They have boundaries. They will fight for a cause with patience and endurance. They're a little bit more fair. 
there's the slugger. A slugger lacks finesse, but they make up for it with raw power. So they will take on any fight they're offered and they will come at you full throttle with shots. There's that type. There's the striker who is, they are aggressive and they're kind of like the slugger, except they're, you know, everything's more thought out. And then there's the counterfighter. And that's the wise type of person in conflict. That's a person who watches their opponent and listens and only responds counter to the shot they've received. And they're healthier. They're wiser. They'll wear their opponent out for the sake of solution. And all of those things apply to types of conflict or mm-hmm. conflict styles because we fight and sometimes we don't fight fair. Sometimes we fight nasty. Sometimes we shoot from the hip because we're so heated and caught in adrenaline that we're just going with the pattern we know. Right. Very good. And if there's anything I hate more than anything in this world, it's conflict. I don't know about you, but I, I want to be good at it so that I can get out of it. You know, yeah, I like to come right. in and shoot strong and fast right. and present the truth, get it on the tra- table and be done. I right. can't handle an unending long conflict that is filled with nastiness and revenge and one-upping each other. I can't, I can't, I can't yeah. take that. I mean, I yeah. had that for years in my family. If I see that coming from 10 miles away, I want to run through the wall. I just, I don't know how people live for that, but some tend to get energy from being in conflict at, with one person after another, after another, after another, and that is their internal drive. I, yeah, believe. I don't, I don't like it. But I won't back, I won't shy away from it. I do want to get away from it. Yeah. No, I won't won't shy away away from it. I'll go running toward it to get it over with. But I don't want it. I can't stand to be in it. Right. Yeah, I don't want to be in it either. And I feel sick. And yeah. Right. Yeah, I don't like it. No. So that ends me with a quote. Wayne Dyer said, conflict cannot survive without your participation. That's a good one. (laughs) Yeah, that is true. (laughs) So we know that we're not the, what was that triangle again? We're not the persecutor. We're not the victim. We're not the hero. We are participants in this human experience. That's right. That is right. right. So that's all I got. Okay. So I guess we'll talk next week. All right. Thanks so much. Keep on coming back with Coming Up for Air. Coming Up for Air. Bye. Bye, Annie. Thank you for listening to this Coming Up for Air podcast with Annie Highwater and Lori McDougall. If you're interested in reading Annie's book, Unhooked, A Mother's Story of Unhitching from the Roller Coaster of Her Son's Addiction, it's available online. Or you can simply follow the link at the bottom of one of Annie's blog posts on alliesinrecovery.net. Coming Up for Air is sponsored by Allies in Recovery, the online home for families facing the addiction of a loved one. Allies in Recovery can help you understand your loved one's struggle and offers effective communication strategies that encourage treatment and discourage use. In addition to interactive e-learning, Allies in Recovery offers expert advice, podcasts, tools for evaluating treatment options, recent news items, and access to a large community of families coping with issues similar to yours. Join alliesinrecovery.net today. That's alliesinrecovery, all one word, dot net. Thank you for listening. Our theme music was performed and composed by cellist Eric Corey. 